Hi, this is Philip Riken, president of Wheaton College, and you're listening to Pints with Jack. Make your choice, adventurous stranger. Strike the bell and bide the danger. Or wonder till it drives you mad. What would have followed if you had? This is Pints with Jack, season six, episode 37. Narnia Month, The Magician's Nephew, part one. Chapters 1 to 8. Welcome everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we're reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. I'm David, and I'm joined by my co-host Matt and, not father, but Uncle Andrew. I've been waiting for this (laughs) for so long. This season, we've been finding ourselves among the stars, reading through C.S. Lewis's first science fiction book in his trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, But today, we're not traveling to Malacandra, but to another world, to Narnia, as we begin the penultimate entry in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Magician's Nephew. And I'm very pleased to announce that today, we're joined by Father Andrew's better half, Dr. Kristen Ditchfield-Lazo. Kristen, welcome back to Pints for Jack. Oh, it's so great to be back with you guys. I'm really excited for this episode. It always (laughs) cleans up our behavior anyway. I'm particularly excited, actually, because... I'm just kidding. This is the first time I've mentioned this, listeners. I might push back a bit on this whole chronological publication order thing. I have Ooh. some new thoughts now that I've officially read the book. <laughs> I've had no thoughts. I've had to take everything as is because I've never read Magician's Nephew. So um, wow. I'm very, yeah. We'll save that though for at some point in this three hours of recording. <laughs> well, what is everyone drinking today? Well, I, it's a cold and rainy day. Well, it's not cold. It's a hot and rainy day here in Orlando. And so I am drinking a cup of Earl Grey. In a fantastic mug that says grit and grace. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. I need both today. (laughs) Well, and it's a hot and rainy day here. So I'm drinking the last pint of the, you know, average but brown uh, independence ale from Aldi. But I'm doing it in my pints with glass, pints with Jack glass. Wonderful. How about you, Matt? Well, since it's it's hot and it's a little bit earlier in the day, I just somehow scotch neat seemed a little bit harsh to be drinking right now. So I went with a uh, a Moscow Mule, which is really refreshing over ice. And if you guys are Moscow Mule fans, the Fever Tree ginger beer is phenomenal. Mm. I'd highly recommend getting Fever Tree ginger beer. Well, and since today we hear the origin story of Jadis, I am drinking the Allagash White. Oh, well, well done. And I can't wait for this toast, by the way, because the person we're going to be toasting here in a second reached out to me, just so you guys know. This is Matt number three. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Well, and today we're toasting our new, 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 is he new? I think upgraded. Yes. I think from okay. what he sent me, he was a Patreon supporter, but to get into the top tier announcement, he was gracious enough to upgrade to the top tier. So we now have a mat number three. So <laughs> today we are toasting our newly upgraded top tier Patreon supporter, Matt Wheeler, uh, whose music I've been enjoying recently. And we're grateful to have Matt number three. And so Matt, as we see the beginning of all worlds uh, in this chronicle. May too, this day be a beginning uh, of new mercies and grace for you and yours. Cheers. Mm. Cheers. 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 That was a good. That was a good one, Andrew. Andrew does really good Patreon supporter toasts. I always appreciate that. 
Matt, do you want to toast in another language since you, you were the expert in our recent quiz? <laughs> <laughs> can, you remember, can you remember any of them? <laughs> no, I was literally about to just go in German, but then I was like, this would, could be culturally insensitive if I just started making sounds in another language. I'm not going to do it. I bit my tongue. <laughs> In Spain, they say salud, dinero y amor y el tiempo para gozarlos. Um, actually, el tiempo para mm. gozarlos. Um, money, uh, health, money, and love, and the time to enjoy them. And on the Klingon homeworld, they say iwilage jakjaj. <laughs> Which is Prost. why I don't want to go to the <laughs> Klingon homeworld. <laughs> Well, Matt, this was your first time reading The Magician's Nephew. You've already suggested that you're embracing some kind of heresy. But before we get to that specifically, <laughs> what were your overall impressions? Yeah, I have a number of thoughts. I'll try to keep them shorter. But the first half, I really was like, where is this going? Why is this book? I was literally, I was asking myself this whole time, this publication, Chronological Order. I'm like, this doesn't even need to be in the series. Um, I really just didn't get a lot out of the first hundred pages, let's say roughly. That's a pattern for you though. Yeah, it is. It was the same one in the last book in fairness. And Lewis always smashes it out of the park at the end. In the last half, I found it absolutely incredible. And the, the knowledge and the wisdom <laughs> in it was profound. Um, I can't wait till you reread because I think you'll find that Lewis smashes it out of the park in the first half, but then you're ready <laughs> for it. That could be a very real reality of like me not fully and also me saving it to the last minute and having to read kind of fast. And so that yeah. also could be part of the reality here. Um, <laughs> but it's a point well taken. I mean, it, it for me too, when I first read Lewis, a lot of times it confused me at first and then I really got it. And then the next time through, I saw how he was setting up all that good stuff at the end all the way through the beginning. Um, and so I think that that's true of good art. I have to grow. Um, you know, what does Lewis say? My own eyes are not my own eyes are not enough for me. I have to expand in order to receive uh, the goodness that's there. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, I think my one thing I would say, and I agree with you, this growing and expanding, it feels like he's setting a stage and trying to get you prepped. But it's a really fast ascent when it comes. I guess I would probably have appreciated slightly more coming a little bit sooner, maybe. It's like set the stage, set the stage, set the stage, set the stage. Bam, here's all of life's truths in the last 40 pages. And there's incredible wisdom in it. Like genuinely, the conversations were like profound spiritual truths. Actually, David, I was thinking a bit in the conversation, it reminded me of the movie Nefarious with the, the, the conversation of the demon with the atheist of it the witch tries to do a pretty good job creating an argument for the the stupidity of of Aslan's kind of claims um and it felt kind of like nefarious when nefarious was trying to say you've got this god that gives you free will but then asks you to give it back to him it's like this is ridiculous and it felt a little bit like that and so there was just so much wisdom in the end it just all happened so fast it felt like a bit of like a water hose <laughs> i think that some of that is that um because uh, this is, it's the penultimate book um, published. It's now put as the first and it shouldn't be. And we can have that fight. And so, you know, just prepare to lose. <laughs> but, um, but Lewis actually starts it. I was doing some research before this episode. He starts it like immediately after Lion, 
with the mm. Lefay fragment and stuff. And he doesn't finish all of it until after the last battle. So there is this kind of sense of wrapping up, tying up, and having to pull it all together so that it fits everything that we know about Narnia. And so in some ways, it's kind of like the first of the prequel movies in Star Wars. It's going to be, you know, I think he's racing to kind of fit it all in because he knows that this is the very end of what he's going to do in Narnia. So here was here was my view with that. Uh, there's probably no better spot than the publication chronicle right here. Right, David? Or do you want to say that's the very, very end of this entire thing? I'm happy to do it either spot. Your choice. No, let's let's do that at the end. I think we've we've okay. we've we've warned Fair. people and of your. That's actually a good that hook. Is, that's that's good a enough. good hook. Yeah. The listeners hear me <laughs> knowing that I, we might have a mini debate here. That comes at the end of you listening <laughs> to two parts of this. It won't well, be a debate. Well, you can call it a, a mini debate. I, I pronounce that um, <laughs> dignified trouncing. But David, you were going to say something about all of that. So go ahead. Well, I was just going to uh, suggest that for listeners who haven't come across Planet Narnia before, um, we should speak about where this book fits into that theory. And for listeners that aren't familiar with it, go check out season four, episode 41, where I interviewed Dr. Michael Ward about this theory. And it's that each of the Narnia books is modeled after one of the planets of the medieval cosmos. So Andrew, let's keep this fairly short. No rambling. Yeah. Where does this book fit into the medieval cosmos? So the goddess of uh, magician's nephew, Ed, does everybody have their drink ready? Um, the <laughs> goddess or planet governing, uh, governing we magician's nephew We drink every nephew time he is, references till we have faces, by the way, Kristen. And I'm feeling an unget reference yeah. coming along. <laughs> no, no, no. I feel pretty tipsy at the end of every episode. <laughs> it's not me referencing till we have faces. It's us, uh, you know, um, acknowledging the 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 foregoing presence of till we have faces already here. So we're just mentioning what's what we already know. The the planet or the goddess over magician's nephew, according to Michael Ward, is Venus, and it's Venus because she's create. It's Venus because she's creative. Um, in the primordial gods of the Greek of the Greek gods, Eros is one of the four primordials. This kind of creative effort. Um, ironically, it's Eros, the the son of Aphrodite. There are three different Aphrodites in Greek mythology, but Aphrodite is Unget, is Venus, and so it's also the last of Lewis's Narnias to be completed. And so the next fiction that Lewis writes after Magician's Nephew, over which Venus is governess, is Till We Have Faces, over which Venus is governess. So he starts with Jupiter, ends with Venus. Um, and just after he meets Joy Davidman and she sets sail for America after their long visit over Christmas, he writes to a friend about Jupiter and Venus um, gazing at each other with the moon in between. And so if you think of the Narnias as starting with Jupiter, which is what Michael Ward rightly suggests, and then ending with Aphrodite or Venus, and then the next fiction that he writes is about Venus, um, till we have faces. And the second fiction that he wrote, Paralandra, is also about Venus. You have these kind of Venusian influences all the way through. And that's, I think, part of whether or not he was right. I think that's part of why Lewis asserted that Venus, um, or that Till We Have Faces was far and away his best book because of the centrality of Venus. And we know in his life that by 1953, when The Magician's Nephew is more or less finished up, 
Joy Davidman is on the scene already writing him love poetry, and we're not sure if he's aware of it. She may have already even announced her intentions to him. And so there is a Venusian, or to use the word that's usually only negative, a venereal element. There's a, a romantic love element going on in the composition of this book. We know that Horse and His Boy was dedicated to her sons. And so Joy Davidman is on the scene and so is Venus. And that's part of what makes this so compelling. Okay. Well, that's one lazo. Let's start drawing from, from the other one. Uh, and <laughs> so let's begin with chapter one. And... These were episode summaries that were, well, they were initially written at narniafans.com, so I used those as my base and worked off them. So, shout out Can to you them. use ChatGPT as your base? I was tempted to give that a go, but I thought, I thought this would be a little bit more reliable. Anyway, <laughs> chapter one is The Wrong Door. Polly and Diggory meet each other at the bottom of the garden and become friends. It is the wettest and coldest summer in years, so they decide to go exploring in the roof space of their row of houses. While attempting to get into an empty neighboring house, they accidentally enter the study of Andrew, Diggory's uncle. Uncle Andrew invites Polly to take a yellow ring from a tray, and the moment she touches it, she disappears from the room. Okay, so, Lazo the Greater. What do you make of this chapter? <laughs> <laughs> by oh universal acknowledgement and acclamation. That might be my next tattoo. <laughs> Lazo the Greater, I love that. Yep. Just remember which name she's using for that. Actually, I feel like it should just be Lazo the Great. I don't know. That yeah. sounds great. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, you know, there there is uh, so much great stuff in The Magician's Nephew, um, especially from a spiritual perspective. I mean, the planets are interesting to me, but ev even more interesting to me is that here we have this prequel to The Chronicles. We have the creation and the fall of man, um, biblically speaking. We have one man, Diggory, a young man, who's responsible for bringing evil into Narnia. Just like the scripture says, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. Uh, but Aslan prophesies, he says, evil will come of that evil, but it's still a long way off, and I will see to it that the worst falls upon myself. So from the very beginning, just as in Genesis, when we have the fall of man, there's a prophecy that one day, there will be redemption. One day there will be healing. One day there will be reconciliation. We have that here in Narnia in the words of Aslan. Um, and as Adam's race has done the harm, Aslan says, Adam's race shall help heal it. So very beautifully, uh, the creation and fall of man is illustrated here. Uh, power. This is an important theme to pay attention to as we read through The Magician's Nephew. Power is a huge theme. The power of pride, the power of temptation, the power of sin, the power of evil. We'll see how power corrupts. But then we also see the power of faith the power of trust, the power that comes from obedience and submission to the will of God as Diggory decides to make a different choice and follow a different path. We'll see that when we are weak, we are strong. Um, there's just so many great life lessons and spiritual truths, and I can't wait to dig into them, but they begin here with the wrong door. <laughs> and they begin in the garden. And that, yes. was th that was the first time I noticed that oh. this time. The story yes. begins in a garden, and it actually also ends in a garden and a tree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Isn't that perfect? <laughs> That's a great catch, David. So I have to say, okay, because we did this 
Kristen, you, you were obviously not on this one. We did this in the last episode that we recorded. I work with AI, and that's why I brought up the chat GPT reference. And I asked about out of the silent planet, is it fallen or not? And its answer was like wisely intelligent. You were As you were giving these big themes, I had up already, I'd asked it, what are the main themes of this book? And it talked about creation, good versus evil, the power of love and sacrifice, the abuse of power, all these things. I'm like <laughs> blown away by the answers this thing gives. I'm like, this is just pretty impressive right now. A lot of what was just there, it kind of captured some of that. There's a reason that ChatGPT gave such good answers. It has almost certainly crawled Kristen's book, A Family Guide <laughs> yes. to Narnia, Biblical Truth in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. You are. It's actually funny you say that. I mean, it has up until November of 2021, anything, if there's a PDF online of your thing, it has read it. And so there's actually a chance it stole your stuff because I'm yes. like, this sounds a lot like ChatGPT's answer it gave me. Oh my goodness. Well, Kristen, you should be getting royalties for this or something. Like somehow you should be getting paid for this this information it stole. I did write this in 2003, so it's it's been a while. It would have saved me a lot of work, it, although maybe I needed to write it so that you AI did. could have it. Uh -huh. <laughs> it wouldn't have come up with the answer if I didn't see something that it had learned from it. I, it clearly learned wow. from you. <laughs> well, and I'm sure David will put in the show notes uh, a link to The Family Guide to Narnia, um, or you can contact us if you want a signed copy. Um, the fact that the chapter's title, The Wrong Door, reminds me of – uh, of Weight of Glory, which was written about 10 years earlier, where Lewis says, at present we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are wrestling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we will get in. And in some ways, I think this is Lewis's imaginative approach to embodying that truth of getting into. Um, so going in the wrong door leads them into the right world. And the intro for this chapter, I'd say is really strong. Uh, and I do have to point out, we have yet another small boy being teased about his name. You know, C.S. Lewis was clearly working through something with his characters, you know, first Eustace, <laughs> now Diggory. Uh, but I wanted to know what you guys thought of this line. In those days, Mr. Sherlock Holmes was still living in Baker Street and the Bastables were looking for treasure in the Lewisham Road. Lewis is reaching out to fictional stories here. What do you make of that? One of the things I always say, um, and I talk about this whenever I give a talk, is I think that if Lewis is an evangelist, he's an apologist, right? He defends the faith. Um, I don't know if he's necessarily an evangelist, except I think he's an evangelist for good and careful reading. And so he sprinkles other literary references all the way through his works. You see him in Silver Chair, where there's a reference to Sir Gawain and the Green Knight with the Lady of the Green Kirtle. There's a reference to Hamlet with the Knight in All Black. Here, Lewis is referring to stories that he loved as a child, but he also wants children to read and relate and say, okay, this is that sort of book. I personally had never read any Sherlock Holmes and didn't even know who the Bastables were until I got them through Lewis. And so it's very clear. It's clear by Orwell writing her manuscript and hoping that somebody will read it. It's very clear through Lewis's own writing project um, that reading is a way to truth. 
And, you know, that's kind of my big theory about till we have faces and everything else. It's clarity and charity by means of myth, by means of story. And so Lewis believes, I think, in the power of story. And part of what he's encouraging students to do, children to do, is to read, you know, more books and find kind of some similar charms. What do you guys think? Matt Minor, Lazo Major. (laughs) (laughs) I have no thoughts. This first half could have been cut. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, I disagree. I mean, it sets up Diggory's dying mother. I mean, I mentioned about Lewis working through mm-hmm. stuff with little boys with uh, embarrassing names. Uh, but I mean, mm-hmm. the big thing here is the fact that his mother is dying just in the same way Lewis's mother was dying of cancer. Right. Mm-hmm. Let me see in this chapter, I put in the margins, is he trying to, I mean, again, I hadn't read this book yet, so this was all fresh. And I was like, is he trying to be creepy? Uncle Andrew is the, the first chapter. Uncle Andrew is the creepiest human I think I've ever come across. I'm literally <laughs> like, is I, this sounds really bad, but I was like getting some pretty negative thoughts of where this could be going. I'm like, this is just comes. This is like stranger danger, red alert, run. Mm-hmm. Would you and, like to pet my guinea pig? I mean, this is literally what I'm kind of thinking, to be honest. Like this crossed my mind of like, this is getting really bad. And I don't know what's going on here, what Lewis was trying to communicate. Because again, I hadn't read the rest of the book. Um so that stuck out to me, and I did, and I did see a little bit. The st- set the stage too of Polly was not so frightened yet. Like there's a difference between Polly and Diggory in terms of their natural dispositions coming into this. That stuck out to me. Um, mm-hmm. Other than that, there wasn't too much. I was so fixated on creepy Andrew. <laughs> I do love how they end up in the in the wrong room, take, opening the wrong door because of mathematics. Mm-hmm. Something that Lewis wasn't very good at either. <laughs> ah. There absolutely are some references to this. And of course, we don't want to get there, get too far ahead of ourselves. But who Diggory turns out to be, you know, the kind of so you see the autobiographical arc kind of completed. The idea, too, of the garden and the and the tree, um, I think it owes something to Tolkien. And we'll get to that when we get there. But Lewis's first critical book is about the garden of love. It's the allegory of love and that kind of medieval image of the garden. And so I think he's playing around with a lot of those things. And I think he's having rather a lot of fun with all of it. One of the interesting things and perhaps a source for this is as they're crawling uh, along in the upstairs attic of the house and getting to the other part of the house, I found out the last time we visited the kilns that the kilns kind of has a back passage as well that you can, Mm -hmm. I think, get to other rooms through. And so perhaps this is Lewis talking about his own house. Maybe it was like Little Lee and the little end room that Polly has where she has all of her writings and stuff is highly reminiscent of the little end room where Lewis and and Warney uh, wrote their stories and had their treasures as well. So there's a lot autobiographical going on in this chapter. Yeah, I seem to recall that Douglas Gresham said that he found the sword which his mother gave Lewis in that area when one time he came back. Anyway, let's push on to chapter two, Diggory and his uncle. Diggory's uncle explains that the rings were made from Atlantean dust, which he obtained from his fairy godmother. The yellow ring has sent Polly into another world. So he invites Diggory to go after her and bring her back using the green rings. Well, you know, um, Matt said in as we were talking about the last chapter how creepy Uncle Andrew is. And here we get full on <laughs> just what a scary, creepy guy he is. And it cracks me up a little bit when Andrew and I, my Andrew, uh, Lazo the... <laughs> the not so creepy, the not so creepy Andrew. <laughs> Lazo the lesser. <laughs> I, I'm down. 
<laughs> when he and I were dating, well, we were engaged, and he re- he was being introduced to my whole family and meeting all of my nieces and nephews. He turned to me at one point and he said, oh, man, I'm going to be Uncle Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> he loved the... Love the family, but didn't like the idea of being an Uncle Andrew because of the character that we really get to know in this chapter. You know, the last time I visited with Walter Hooper of blessed memory, um, he was in the kitchen uh, when I last time I visited him by myself. Actually, Kristen and I got a chance to visit with him, but um, he was in the kitchen uh, making tea and he had a cat, the blessed Lucy of Narnia. And Lucy liked male visitors for some reason, but didn't like female visitors. So she and I always got along famously. But I'm sitting there in the sitting room right next to a bookcase of Lewis's books, for like his own books, and a copy of Fantasties and the Early Prose Joy notebook and everything. In the kitchen, Walter is putting together this lovely silver tea set for a little tea for us. And um, Walter's uh, sense of humor after some surgery had fully come back. So I hear from the kitchen, Walter saying... Blessed Lucy, why don't you go visit your Uncle Andrew? (laughs) (laughs) That he brings out the tea. And then there are those uh, sugar-crusted coconut biscuits from uh, Sainsbury's or whatever. And they're called Nice Biscuits. And he said, Andrew, Captain Hardcastle from that hideous strength baked these biscuits for you. They're very nice, which is the name of the evil organization, (laughs) the Nice said, I think she rather likes you. I think she's interested in your head, which is an inside <laughs> joke that you'll get when we read that hideous wreck. So, yes, I was even Uncle Andrew to uh, to Walter Hooper and, and Blessed Lucy of Narnia. Yeah, It's a good thing now you're Father Andrew. Yes. My family, Kristen's family, made me an apron Full and ordered Father, Uncle, Brother uh, Lazo. So. When I was rereading this chapter this time, I really saw this chapter as really preparing us for the white witch and her philosophy of life. Mm -hmm. We see all the same seeds that are there. They just haven't quite fully grown. Another interesting thing that we find in this chapter is a reference to Mrs. Le Fay. And Mm. in his book, Past Watchful Dragons, Walter Hooper includes the entire 26 notebook pages of the Le Fay fragment. And so this is a fragment of false start Uh, if you will, of The Magician's Nephew, which Lewis begins writing right after Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it includes a reference to Pattertwig, who we find in Prince Caspian. So we know it must be written right around then, 48, 49. But this Mrs. Le Fay, and that's also another literary reference to Morgana Le Fay and the fairy. And so Lewis is doing a lot of of stuff here in chapter two, including setting the stage for Jadis and, um, and for the Queen of Charm. Well, and and I think to David's point, um, you know, we meet a very what seems like a very wicked uh, uh, man in Uncle Andrew, who has all these. He's got all these this pride and these pretensions and this desire to seek out secret knowledge and power, and he ridicules what's good and just. <laughs> and uh, you know, he's he's a perfect villain. He's a scriptural villain. I mean, there are a lot of scriptures about the foolish man or the wicked man that describe Uncle Andrew to a T. But then when we meet Jadis, we see the real thing. I mean, it, to me, it's it's like the wickedness of man compared to the devil. I mean, you, you see that <laughs> for example. all of his posturing, um, he's a petty villain. And Jadis is the real thing, which is evil to the core. And she's what, what happens when you take all those philosophies that 
uh, Uncle Andrew is playing around with and really live them and put them into practice. Ah, friends, she's a damn fine girl, isn't she? (laughs) (laughs) But no, that's actually, I didn't didn't think about it from that phrasing, but it's really, it can be really easy in life to not, we're very good at this as humans, of not being able to extrapolate the ends of our actions decades down the road, which is why we tend to live Mm -hmm. in the moment, we make bad decisions. Oh, this little sin is not going to affect me in that big of a way. But what you just pointed out there is, She's the example of what happens if you continue down Uncle Andrew's path. Mm-hmm. And like seeing Uncle Andrew, you, can, you, could, you could chalk it up as, well, he's annoying, he's obnoxious, but not the end of the world. Seeing Jadis, you can't at all it, uh, like discount that. And so if you start realizing that Uncle Andrew's a projection or Jadis is where the end goal is going to be, it's like, I don't want to be Uncle Andrew even because I definitely don't want to be mm. Jadis. And, I, and I, Uncle Andrew is just the door to get to that. So I like that phrasing. I never really saw it that way. Um, that's really that's finely observed, Matt. That's really good. That's that's oh, action you, becoming Andrew. habit thank and having become becoming vice. No, I had never thought about that before. Because yeah. yeah, he's kind of a fop and an idiot. But yeah. if he continues where he's going, it's going to get a whole lot more serious, and she's going to turn into that hard bitten evil. And that danger, as you said, is is with us, you know. Too, it may seem like a light and momentary, you know, uh, small sin. But if I continue following it, that's my destiny. So I'd never, never put that together. Well done. Oh, thank you. Um, one other thing I was going to say about Uncle Andrew was he reminded me a lot of um, Weston Divine. Mm-hmm. Of just Weston I, I had this part where he says, "Silence." Yeah, Weston, mm-hmm. you're right. Silence, or I will not be talked to like that by a little dirty schoolboy. You don't understand. I am the great scholar, the magician, the adept who is doing the experience. <laughs> of course, I need subjects to do it on. Kind of that yeah. humanity versus humans. If you have this worldview of this bigger noble cause, or at least in your mind noble, you can justify some pretty extreme bad behavior because the the ends justify the means in their minds. And that could be a very dangerous ideology. And you could kind of see that here with him. You could see that also in Out of the Silent Planet. Mm. Yeah, nice. You could very easily pair this with the abolition of man uh, because you see the, the fundamental flaw. This is Andrew's worldview. He says, uh, little boys ought to keep their promises. Very true, most right and proper, I'm sure. And I'm very glad you've been taught to do it. But of course, you must understand that rules of that sort, however excellent they may be for little boys and servants and women, and even people in general, (laughs) can't possibly be expected to apply to profound students and great thinkers and sages. No, Diggory, men like me who possess hidden wisdom are freed from common rules just as we are cut off from common pleasures. Ours, my boy, is a high and lonely destiny. Yes. And also, I mean, that absolutely embodies the workers of magic and Madame Blatovsky, uh, Blavatsky and, and the second hermetic order of the Golden Dawn with which Charles Williams was associated. In that era, there were people who had rejected God, who had accepted scientism and, and evolution, but who were also trying to find something outside of God that had some spiritual power. And that's there were a lot of real live magic working societies. And Aleister Crowley comes out of all of this too. And that's where, and so Lewis is ridiculing this, but also he's ridiculing his own past, I think, because he had been interested and had dabbled in magic. 
um, went during his uh, during his spiritual journey, and so he's ridiculing not and repenting at the same time. So in some ways, uh, Uncle Andrew is who Lewis could have become had he um, had he stayed on that same path. So yeah, there's a lot here. You know, absolutely. I, I love that connection to Lewis. Um, but I think even those of us who maybe, ha- if we haven't felt that pull toward the magic and the secret and the knowledge um, um, can relate to this. It reminds me of a book, and I can't remember the author's name, but I, I read a few years ago called The Fatal Flaw. And it was it looked at all these characters from the Bible and what James was their, uh, maybe so, uh, what was their undoing? Uh, and it reminds me, just reading over that that quote that you pulled, David, which is perfect, of how many Christian leaders in our day and how many of us are tempted to believe that because we have a calling, because we're in some kind of ministry or we have some kind of position of influence, that, that God will make an exception for us, that the rules don't apply to us, that our weaknesses and sins don't need to be combated as fiercely as, you know, the, the little people, because God knows how hard our job is and how important our calling and our ministry is. And so he's going to overlook those areas of sin and temptation that we fall into. And what a tragic flaw that can be, how important it is for us uh, to not give in to that seductive lie that Uncle Andrew is putting across here, that we have, that our calling or our position somehow exempts us um, from from God's holy and righteous standards. Um, you know, the opposite is true. We're held to a higher standard. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. This is that was something I, I struggled with a bit in in uh, pandemic. I was just going through a rough period, and I didn't feel like I was living really in right order with um, with how I should be as a Christian. Let's just say, <laughs> leave it at that. And I was very transparent on this podcast with the during the Screw Tape Letter season because. I had the exact opposite feeling. I was like, there's people literally listening to me and David and then Andrew, were you with us with the screw tape letters? Yeah, we were going back and forth in that one. And Andrew, talk about like this spiritual journey. And I'm like, I feel like I'm not living this out very well right now. And I feel super like a fraud. It was like really hard for me to, I I, I had like literally the exact opposite feeling of what you described. I, I mean, I'm not like trying to say that's not, I was just like, I'm having a hard time doing this. I feel so unworthy of even talking and people listening. Um, anyways, that was a side tangent. But quick question, guys, because there's books written. People have talked about Lewis's um, sexism, which I think has been pretty combated. David, you brought someone on. But like, was this ever a spot, that section, that quote that you brought up, David, where he says the sort, however excellent, the little boys, the servants and women? Because I first read that, I underlined it. And I'm like, oh, that's so bad. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me about five minutes after reading it. He's Wait, a baddie. Uncle Andrew. Who, yeah, he's literally make he, the person <laughs> who's saying this, he's literally makes sound like the stupidest human in the world. So, of course, he doesn't believe this. But have people ever taken that out of context? I have heard That's every unreal. single line taken out of context. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and if they hadn't have done that, Kristen and I would never have met because the book that we contributed to that led to our meeting, Women in C.S. Lewis, edited by Mary Key and Carolyn Curtis, um, tackled some of that. The other one who really r- runs down women in the Chronicles of Narnia is Rabidash and mm-hmm. Morse and his boy. But mm-hmm. I think, Matt, you bring out a really excellent point, and it's an excellent hermeneutical tactic with Lewis. If Lewis says something offensive, oftentimes it's somebody who's an idiot voicing it, right? Um, even Edmund um, does some of that. You know, it's a, it's a pity that, women, that girls can't keep maps in their heads. And of course, Lucy fires right back with, yeah, that's because we've got something in our heads, you know. <laughs> um, I forgot. That's a great comeback. Yeah. 
And so if Lewis sounds misogynistic, it's worth looking at who's speaking. And very often, like you said, it's a bozo who's enunciating that. And that, in fact, is Lewis not being misogynistic. But maybe we should allow the woman to pipe up. Speak about <laughs> I was about to chip in. It's like, that's some wonderful mansplaining, Andrew. Thank you. <laughs> yes, yes. Would you like me to tell you more about women in C.S. Lewis? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That was really good. <laughs> oh, no, I think David's got it right. He's a baddie. And this is just one more example of why we can't trust anything Uncle Andrew says and why we shouldn't uh, look up to him or respect him as a character. His every word betrays um, what an untrustworthy and disrespectable <laughs> is that a word? Um, what a what a hot mess he is, and why we don't want to put our lives in his hands. Hmm. Respectable. She did the opposite of what you did. It. <laughs> so Andrew's big thing to joke if we've been. I mean, we don't ever drink excessively on here, but sometimes he'll make a joke, even the very beginning, like respectable. <laughs> yeah. So just you just did the opposite. This is why you guys are married. <laughs> but yes, while Andrew claims, well, Uncle Andrew claims that uh, the rules basically don't apply to him. Uh, he's not. He's not above using the Tao, using moral standards to coerce mm. other people into doing what he wants. And that's what he does with Diggory. He basically says, I hope you're not a coward. I thought you'd be chivalrous enough to go and uh, aid a lady in distress. And so that brings us to chapter three, The Wood Between the Worlds. Well, and I just want to say this. I hope that I find Uncle Andrew in heaven, and I hope that Susan is with him. (laughs) Well, we'll learn about the fate of Uncle Andrew uh, when we get to the end. There's some hope (laughs) for him. Yes, and for us all. Chapter 3 After picking up a yellow ring, Diggory finds himself in The Wood Between the Worlds, a quiet, peaceful forest filled with pools. Neither Diggory nor Polly initially remember who they are. However, they eventually remember, and the pair then decide to explore other worlds. After checking that they can in fact return to London, they jump into another pool. So my first question on this chapter is, what do you make of the forgetfulness when they first arrive at the Wood Between the Worlds? What's Lewis doing? What's his purpose? This is a a, a massive stab in the dark. So take it with a grain of salt. And I'm the least smart on this episode, so take it with a heavy pinch of salt. Do you think there's something there of like, when you get to... So till we have faces. <laughs> yes. There you go. That's how you get a hearing on this show. <laughs> um, so in, in, I feel like when we get to heaven, if we get to heaven, I mean, like if, if we're fortunate enough to be there, I feel like there's got to be some sort of just, I don't want to say forgetting of the past, but you just, you're so presently in the moment when you get there, you're not like reminiscing necessarily on the good or the bad, but you're just so enthralled in the beauty of reality and the beatific vision that maybe this is meant to foreshadow a small sense of that. Obviously, they're not in there, but they're in some other world that's getting them closer to it. I don't know. That's that was a thought. I think you're missing an obvious allusion. Okay, to you don't need to finish Lewis's... this now. Actually, if I'm missing something, you can just say, David. What did you have to say? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure David was about to say this, but there's an obvious allusion to Lewis's second best book. What happens when mm. they come even to the shoreland of heaven is the earth seems much more like a nightmare. And 
Uh, there's a, I can't recommend highly enough Paul F. Ford's fifth edition of the Companion to Narnia, in part because of his appendices. And there's a Narnian atlas, which is part of appendix, I think, six or seven. Um, and it draws Aslan's country and Charn's world and the wood between the worlds. And it positions the wood between the worlds in Aslan's country. And so when they are even in this, this kind of hallway space or, or um, liminal space between many worlds in Aslan's country, our own world necessarily becomes less real because they are closer to the actual real um, that's going on. So I think that may be part of their memory loss. Well, I'm going to just jump in here and say there's a famous quote um, where Lewis talks about the differences between men and women. And in his example, he talks about men being more philosophical and women being more practical. And I'm just going to live up to that type right now and say, while well, you're all going deep, uh, you all <laughs> deep and theological. I, I just assume that it's what happens when you use magic. Sometimes there's some disorientation <laughs> <laughs> in any kind of time travel or use of doesn't, isn't that kind of a tenet of fantasy and sci-fi? Um, magic has a cost. And so mm. when you use mm. it, you're going to have, there are going to be some side effects or some reverberations. Mm. My one suggestion was going to be, it's a bit of an allusion to Lewis's best book, The Great Divorce, uh, is that it's mentioned there, <coughs> but in Greek mythology, uh, the lathe, it's one of the rivers of the underworld yeah. that erases mm. the memories of the souls of the dead. And yeah. I, I don't think it's maybe that directly, but I think that might be at the back of his head somewhere. Sure. You know. I draw something perhaps too uh, from from Lewis's uh, the, from the book which of which season we're just wrapping up when he gets outside of the bonds of Earth, right? Um, the surly bonds and gets out into the real where through it's not the silent planet and it's not mm -hmm. under under the, the 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 rule of the bent one, and so maybe there's this kind of this forgetfulness for how twisted and bent their own world was because they are closer to the real. Mm, I like that. Could be. <laughs> I want to point out too, as long as we're talking about the wood between the worlds, I used to have a, um, uh, a C.S. Lewis reading group called the Caffeinated Lamppost Society. And we'd meet every other Saturday and have tea and cake and, and go through Narnia. And get lit. And the get lamppost lit. society. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, there we go. Um, we spent one fruitful morning trying to figure out geographically where the wood between the worlds was. Um, and there's this, in this chapter, um, when they put their ring on, rings on, uh, it, the narrator says, at first there were bright lights moving about in a black sky. Diggory always thinks that these were stars and even swears that he saw Jupiter quite close, mm. close enough to see its moon. So I think that the wood between the worlds is located somewhere in the galaxy or the solar system in between Earth. I think that they go through. It's, it sounds like some space travel if he really did see Jupiter, and I believe him. And so the wood between the worlds is, I think, geographically, I don't know, they have to pass through what we would consider wrongly labeled outer space in order to get there. So there's something going on there. You spent a whole morning working this out? <laughs> there was a lot of tea, ah, and it was very strong that ah. morning. Well, if we're to trust Uncle Andrew, and we do find out that he doesn't know everything that's 
how all of this stuff hangs together and works. He says that these other worlds aren't places you could just travel to, that it would require magic. And I mentioned Greek mythology earlier, and I actually think this might also be an allusion to Norse mythology. It's like Idrasil, the life tree that connects all of the, all of the worlds together. Mm. But I do like the fact that Diggory gives a Lewisian example. He gives an analogy. He says, oh, so it's kind of like that in-between space between our houses. You know, stuff doesn't happen there, but it's how you travel from one house, from one world to another. Yeah. Well, and I think that your your reference to Yggdrasil is is well taken in one version of, in the American version before 1994 of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He, Lewis talks about the trunk of the world ash tree. And so Lewis mm. actually had a reference to Yggdrasil in his original Narnia series that, that, that then got... Um, that then got changed up. And so, yeah, I think he's tapping into a lot of these different mythologies. Now, in this chapter, we also discover something about Diggory. We're told who he is when he grows up. Matt, what was your reaction? What was your hot take to that? <laughs> I underlined it. It's actually the only thing in this chapter I underlined. I was like, hey, it's Professor Diggory Kirk, which now that I speak out loud could be an argument in favor of the... Uh, um, publication order. Oh, <laughs> so, so knowing his degree, I would say this: knowing he, knowing that he was Professor Diggory Kirk. <laughs> Andrew is making Diggory. faces at Matt. It's rather beautiful. Um, if only I'm like knowing faces, that David. it did lead to a little bit of a hook to me because I was like, oh, this is because so, it made it, it led to a suspenseful curiosity of how does a person go from what I have now read about um, Diggory and knowing this person becomes Professor Kirk. What happens in between? So mm -hmm. as, a, as a casual reader, I was like, oh, I'm actually now, there's another reason I'm intrigued by this story because I'd like to know that. Uh, let's just take a quick vote, by the way. Who likes the young Diggory better than we like the young Anakin? Oh, not even close. <laughs> young Anakin. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sure yeah. Diggory loves sand. Well, let's uh, push on to the next chapter, but I will just end by pointing out the fecundity of Venus, uh, its influence on this book in the way that Diggory would later describe the wood between the worlds. He says, it was a rich place, as rich as plum cake. And if any of the listeners have tried plum, plum cake, it is really rich. Kind of gross, really. But that's <laughs> the kind of dessert that the British specialize in. So, sorry. Yeah. Anyway, on to chapter four. The Bell and the Hammer. Polly and Diggory find themselves in a world that seems old and dying. After exploring for a while, they come across an enchanted room of statues. Despite Polly trying to stop him, after reading an inscription, Diggory strikes the bell in the middle of the room. Parts of the building fall down, and although the children think they are now quite safe, they are in fact quite wrong. Here we see what happens when you're hot-headed and you give in to temptation and you behave rashly, which the narrator throughout the Chronicles of Narnia repeatedly warns us not to do, to be careful, to take thought, to be smart and strategic and keep our heads about ourselves. And uh, Diggory does not do that. And uh, so we have a, um, you know, there's a proverb, Proverbs 25, 28 says, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. And yes. that's Diggory in this chapter. And oh boy, does he live to regret it. 
Yeah. Well, and he also justifies himself, you know, oh, the curiosity was driving me mad. And you can hear echoes of the screw tape letters, you know, when he allows himself temptation, you know, and he makes excuses to give in to temptation when there really is never a good excuse. And so, yeah, I think that there's some of that going on here too. And I'd suggest even Chan is kind of like the anti-Venus. It's not a place of of life and nurturing, but it's sterile and it's and it's death filled. Mm-hmm. Well, and here we have a dying world, kind of like Malacandra. We have a world more towards its end than it than its beginning. But in Malacandra, we have all kinds of fruitfulness and love and and creativity. And here we just have these these kings who get increase whose faces get increasingly harsh and 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 ugly. And so. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's that's an excellent contrast. And when they go to that room filled with all of the statues, waxworks, whatever you want to call them, uh, I actually think that might be a, a subtle nod towards the myth of progress. Uh, because one of the things that Lewis kept fighting against was this idea, well, everything's just getting better and better and people are getting more and more moral. And here you you you, you have a very clear chart of the decline of a world that they, that they started off nice, uh, but then they become stern and then they start to become really, really nasty. You know, and that I think really supports the argument that I've made and others um, have suggested as well, of course, um, that Lewis and Tolkien are kind of combating the literary modernism, the modernism of their age that says, oh, with the Industrial Revolution, everything's getting better and better and better. And then World War One comes along and then World War Two comes along. And so it, it debunks the myth of progress. And what you see is this kind of increase um, harshness, selfishness, and and devotion to power. And I don't know that Lewis could necessarily have written this before World War II. Um, and so, yeah, this kind of idea of, of the Superman, the Ubermensch, and getting better and better is absolutely uh, put to the lie you know, here in this chapter. Hmm. Well, the Ubermensch in this version is basically Jadis. Matt, what did you make of Diggory's reaction to her? He seems terribly impressed and describes her as beautiful. And uh, he says at the end of his life that he'd never met a, a woman that was more beautiful than Jadis. When uh, approaching this from, I don't actually remember what my thought was when I read this in real time, but now after having known what the end is, if she's kind of the end of what turning from God could look like, I mean, she's in the garden doing the exact opposite here. She was at the very end of that progression making it sound like this is like the end goal of you become more hellish and hellish and hellish and hellish, you become like her. I feel like it's just that reminder that there's a subtle appeal to it still though. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's, it's from our perspective, from an outside reading it, it's like incredibly obvious what a terrible human being, but in real life, we're constantly presented with evil and there's a constant appeal that we almost convince ourselves or drawn to it. There's a beauty a fake beauty, a false beauty, but nevertheless, there's a reason mm -hmm. we turn away from God and we turn towards this other thing. So mm. I felt like it was just his way of demonstrating that. Well, and there's the obvious parallel with Edmund, right? Um, who's attracted by this thing uh, with its glitter and gold. Um, and here's another child um, who, you know, who's attracted to to the sister, the cousin or whatever of, of Jadis, um, according to one... A one passage. And although Edmund repents and comes to faith and 
um, and in some ways perhaps supersedes even Lucy and Peter, there's still this scar at the beginning. And in the same way, there's this kind of scar at the beginning because of Diggory. Now we love the professor and the professor becomes in some ways, you know, very, very much redeemed, but he doesn't start that way, you know, and it's in mere Christianity. It's not a story that starts in comfort. It starts in great despair. And we see the setting up of that right here. Well, and Lewis does a great job of, of throughout the Chronicles of portraying evil as it is. Uh, and the scripture says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. You know, it's deceptive. And we see this also in the silver chair with the lady of the green kirtle, right? It's There's something beautiful and, and deceptive about evil. If, if uh, you know, theologians talk about how the devil doesn't really wear red and have horns and a pitchfork. I mean, if it was obvious, you know, we would know we would avoid him, right? If every evil character looked awful, we would avoid them. But the, the truth is that evil often looks beautiful. It often looks harmless. And that's what's so dis, um, so seductive and so destructive about it. And and Diggory falls right for that. He's he's mm-hmm. entranced. He's seduced by that beauty, by that. Um, I mean, temporarily, it, it it makes a powerful impression on him. It's a great word, by the way, seductive. Just to highlight that um, beautiful choice of words there. Yeah. Evil seductive. I think too that there's something here that um, to which the the Holy Eucharist is the ultimate answer because Jadis has this temptation around an apple that we'll see at the end of this. And then she tempts Edmund with Turkish delight. And it's this kind of false use of what food is for, of which we see the redemption in in the Holy Eucharist. And so she's counterfeiting, which is what evil always does. She's counterfeiting even the appeals to the flesh. And twists good things. One of the things I'd say this chapter highlights, we've had hints throughout it so far, but this one really highlights the similarity between Diggory and his uncle. Holly says, you look exactly like your uncle when you said that. And so you actually see that Diggory has a choice ahead of him. His, His path of righteousness is not guaranteed. It's going to very much depend on what he does with what he's been given. (laughs) Is that the part you grab your glasses? David, is that the part you were getting at when I sent you that audio message on Harry Potter? Because I had just watched number four, I think. Uh, Yeah, quite possibly. Uh, Or number two. I'll I'll pull up messages and hang on, hang on. My my son is having a meltdown. Uh, He's just he's just going to bed and he doesn't like going to sleep, despite the fact he loves going to sleep. Sweetie, piggybacking off your comment you said earlier, Andrew. I underline that in chapter 14. I really did like that of you just mentioned like focusing on the Eucharist and, and Christ mm-hmm. ultimately. In 14 when he says, but he was in no danger of feeling conceited for he didn't think about it at all now that he was face to face with Aslan. And I feel like there's so much hope in the idea that you brought up here is it can be, I had this in my own spiritual journey at various points in time. You read screw tape letters, you read this, it's like, man, am I becoming, am I becoming, um, uh, Jadis, am I on the path to Uncle Andrew? Am I this? Well, I'll say if I, I, every step of the way, I have to watch out for screw tape doing stuff. It's like it can also it can be very honestly kind of depressing when you hear all of these different things fighting against you. And then you realize it's a super simple answer. If you focus on Christ, if you're like Peter walking on water, when he mm-hmm. stops looking at Jesus, he starts to sink. But when he looks at him, he's it's like when you look at Christ, that's all you have to really focus on. I mean, I know there's a little bit more nuance, but like, if you just focus on that, everything will end up being okay. You don't need to be afraid of all this other stuff. 
Look for yourself and you'll only find rage, ruin, hopelessness, and despair. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown Mm -hmm. in. And this line. Slow clap, Andrew. Slow clap, worthy. Good, good clap. Thank you. But this line, you look just like your uncle, is a foreshadowing of the book that he writes a couple of years later with Joy Davidman. You look just like your father, which is what Orwall and Psyche uh, both accuse each other of in uh-huh. I thought you were going to do one of my face-to-face reference, you know, face-to-face. with <laughs> Well, with that, yes. let's move on to chapter five, the deplorable word. One of the figures in the room comes to life. She is Queen Jadis of Chan. She tells Diggory and Polly how she destroyed all life on her world. And she asks them how they came to be there and what their world is like. When she demands to be taken with them, the children try to escape. Well, the way that she destroyed her whole world is by uh, accessing uh, supernatural power by the use of a magic and the deplorable word. She spoke a word that should never be spoken. And of course, Lewis doesn't tell us what that word uh, is or was, um, but just the horror of that, that she's so glib and um, blasé in in one sense, or, or proud of having destroyed her entire world. And many readers, I, I ran across some of this uh, letters that people wrote to Lewis. Um, readers in Lewis's day thought that he was using code for the atomic bomb because, of mm-hmm. course, that was really big on people's hearts and minds in that era. Um, but Lewis w- wasn't actually referencing the bomb. And he he answered those letters and said, no, actually, not, <laughs> that's not specifically what I was thinking of. In fact, um, there in some of his writings, he predicted that biological warfare would supersede it. But what his answer was, he said, as a Christian, I take it for granted that human history will someday end. Uh, you know, we are we are on a path. And until Jesus comes back and restores all things, we are hurtling down that path. But here we have an example of, of what's taken place in another world that, that could easily happen in ours, how it could unfold as the people who grab for power um, become more and more ruthless in their use of it. Well, and I think that it's another uh, argument against misogyny. Um, and Lewis is getting closer and closer to writing till we have faces with Joy Davidman. And so even though she's the the, the villain, he empowers a woman. Um, and in the chapter before that we just left, when he looks like Uncle Andrew, um, Polly calls him out and tells him the truth. I don't believe you. You're just putting it on. That's all you know. It's because you're a girl. Girls never want to know anything but gossip and rot about people getting engaged. And then the next chapter, he meets Jadis, um, who couldn't possibly be further from that. And so even in empowering the female characters as evil, he's centralizing them. And so, um, but she's twisting everything, which is, which is, you know, part of what evil always does. And she has the same flaw as Uncle Andrew. You know, it's equal opportunity. The, the line that she says here, this is what happens to things and to people who stand in my way. And that same uh, coupling of things and people appears later in the text. And you see that she doesn't really distinguish between the two. Things and, to, and people, mm-hmm. they're both to be used. Mm-hmm. Which is, ironically, you see this in Lewis, and there's even some discussion in the letters with Jock Gibb with his publisher. When Lewis doesn't know if a thing is human... He calls an animal it, 
until it undertake until it takes on personality or gender. So Mr. Beaver is originally it. It was a beaver, um, but then he turns into a person, and so. God is turning us, like it says in, um, you know, in rumors from a sculptor's shop, shop, that God is turning us from being these obstinate tin soldiers into real people. And that's always his move to go from being it to being actual people whose personality reflects the divine personalities in the Holy Trinity. What does Jadis do? She turns, she turns flesh and blood into stone. So it's this kind of Medusan um, move and the move that Lewis is encouraging us to in in your Christianity and elsewhere ten years earlier is from being a thing to being a person, being more like God. And Jadis is moving in exactly the opposite of that, even though she just recovered personality from being as still as a statue. There's so much going on here, mm. and there is actually a, a small reference to temples in Chan, and it did make me wonder what would the religion of Chan even look like? Is Jadis the, the sort of person to submit to anyone, even a deity? And my personal conspiracy theory is perhaps this is the origin of Tash. Mm. Well, let's push on to chapter six, the beginning of Uncle Andrew's troubles. The children make it back to the wood between the worlds, but realize that they've brought Jadis with them. They try to leave her there, but she manages to make it back with them to Uncle Andrew's attic. Polly goes home, but agrees to come back to help with the witch as soon as she can. Andrew has a sneaky drink, changes his clothes, and asks to borrow some money from his sister when the witch bursts into the room. So, one question that I had here is, why do you think the witch can't stand the wood? Why does, why does it seem to hurt her? It's closer to Aslan's country. Yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> and it's and it's closer to self-forgetfulness, right? Mm. They forget even who they are. And self-forgetfulness, according to mere Christianity and elsewhere, self-forgetfulness helps us to find our true selves. It says our true selves are waiting for us in him. Jadis has already had all of the self that she wants and doesn't need anybody else giving it to her. So it's a move towards selflessness, which would destroy the veneer and everything else that she set herself up for. Matt, would you have left the witch in the wood between the worlds? Always oh, thinking about it. You, you, you delayed too long. <laughs> yeah, the witch has I mean, grabbed onto your heel and you brought her back into London. I guess we, I guess yeah. we got our answer. <laughs> I mean, I, I would have made like, for really a shorter torn. book. I was trying to answer it from the authentic, like, what if I'm Diggory? Because from the outside perspective, I'm like, man, I'd love to see what she does in London. <laughs> um, <laughs> Some so men, Master Wayne, just want to see the world burn. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I would have loved uh, No, and then that part of me was thinking as there as I was processing, I'm like, well, maybe she would actually be impotent in terms of her power in London, which we did end up finding out to be true. So there was a humor there. So it's hard for me to answer purely if I'm in Diggory's shoes, but... I'm glad she got to London. This could have all been cut, David. We didn't need any of this. Give me the good stuff. What I really like in this chapter is the compare and contrast between Jadis and Uncle Andrew. Because yes. we've seen some similarities, but here we also start to see some differences as well. We get to see what this, what this central flaw, what this sin looks like when it's fully grown. Uh, the line is, uh, one good thing about seeing the two of them together was that you would never again be afraid of Uncle Andrew any more than you'd be afraid of a worm after you met a rattlesnake or afraid of a cow after you'd met a mad bull. 
Mm-hmm. There's also lots of hints to a deeper lore. If you recall, Jada spent some time looking at Diggory's face for a mark of a magician. And she doesn't see it, but she sees a, a trace of it in Andrew. But it, it's substandard, cheap. I'm not, I'm not quite sure how, how to really describe it. You know, in scripture, we have a couple of references to that. Like uh, Cain was marked, the scripture says, and set apart by God so that people, uh, you know, after his sin of, of murdering his brother, and we don't know what that mark was, but somehow people knew not to kill him because God had put a mark uh, on Cain. And then the scripture in the New Testament talks about being marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit, that those who belong to God are set apart and sealed. There's something that we can't see it. We look in the mirror, we don't see it, but somehow we are set apart and sealed by God and we are claimed as his. And so I, I heard echoes of that in this, that, that maybe even the enemy has a claim on, you know, there, there are those who are, are claimed by him or set apart by him. What it reminded me of was the end of Mere Christianity, where Lewis says that basically saints will recognize each other. There'll be some some quality in themselves that they recognize when they see it in another. Vice versa here. I see, she said scornfully, you are a magician of a sort. So in Sonnet 22 from Joy Davidman to C.S. Lewis, written in 1954, My love who does not love me but is kind, lately apologized for lack of love, praising the fire and glitter of my mind, the valor of my heart, and speaking of affection, admiration, bitter scraps men fling the begging woman at the door when hunger lends her courage and she raps loud at their conscience. Why, there was more. This is Joy speaking of Lewis talking to her. He said that I had a beauty of a sort. Might do for other men, but not for him, at which the grinning devils had their sport and tore me shrieking limb from bleeding limb. To be rejected, oh, this worst of wounds, not for love of God, but love of blondes. (laughs) But here's that phrase of a sort, and it's this phrase of pain, this phrase of rejection. um, That So we don't know whether or not Lewis ever read this. Uh, poem, but perhaps Joy took this phrase from Magician's Nephew. And speaking of unrequited love, Andrew starts Mm -hmm. being very silly. There's a wonderful line here where it says, children have one kind of silliness, as you know, and grown-ups have another kind. At that moment, Uncle Andrew was beginning to be silly in a very grown-up way. (laughs) You know, he sneaks off, he has a drink, he gets some Dutch courage and starts dressing dressing up and starting to think, you know what, I look look pretty good. and the the narrator says he was as vain as a peacock. That is why he had become a magician. Yes. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's different than Jadis's magicianship. Hmm. Well, let's wrap up today's episode with chapter seven. What happened at the front door? The witch tries to turn Andrew's sister to dust, but her magic doesn't work. So she throws her across the room, where she fortunately lands on a mattress that she was mending. While Polly is grounded by her parents, Diggory comes up with a plan to return the witch. He also hears a conversation between his aunt and a visitor, which gives him hope. The witch reappears outside the house, being followed by a policeman and a crowd of onlookers. So as this book's progressed, things have got more serious, but they've also got more farcical. You know, Uncle Andrew, we were originally really kind of scared of him because he is this creepy dude. 
And he's now just this figure of fun, this henpecked man uh, who has no spine to speak of whatsoever. And you then have this quite comedic situation that happens outside the house. Uh, but even before that, you have the queen bursting into the room and Letitia responds to the queen. She says, get out of my house this moment, you shameless hussy, or I'll send for the police. And I love this comment. She thought the witch must be someone out of the circus and she did not approve of bare arms. And, <laughs> and, and when, when, when the witch gives her incantation, she replies, I thought as much. The woman is drunk, drunk. She can't even speak clearly. <laughs> but here's the question. Why do you think her magic doesn't work in our world? Is it sort of a, a reverse Superman thing? You know, he comes to our earth and our sun mm. gives him power. Does the opposite yes. happen with the witch? <laughs> okay. I think that there seems to be some of that. Um, and I would, I, I didn't, I didn't reread what Michael Ward has to say, but I wonder if some of that is interstellar, you know, is related to the stars. Yeah. I quite like that theory, actually. I feel like there's something super deep there, but it's just not, oh, it's a really good question. And it's bugging me if I had more time to. Yeah, why is her magic not work there? There's like, is it, is it something to do with it's like a inauthentic magic? But then the question is like, why was she given it in the one realm and not this realm? I doubt she was given it. I'm sure she took it. Maybe the thing that she took it from doesn't work here, but does in Narnia. Hmm. Maybe she was she received her power from an Oyarsa of charm. And now mm -hmm. she's in somebody else's realm, right? Mm -hmm. She her magic doesn't work because the the prince of the power of the air is the one who controls such things. She's under Satan, although she doesn't know it. And I think it would appall her to think of her as being under anybody else. <laughs> you know, I have to say, there's one line that I loved, and is is she's attempting to bend them to her will. Nothing worked in this world as we we're just talking about and she goes but she did not lose her nerve even for a second like just the delusion <laughs> that she had and how often do you meet those individuals that they have honestly a shallow sense of intelligence or shallow so but they can somehow speak as if there's just a massive amount of like there's just a conviction to some of the to them matt be sensitive met andrew's right here <laughs> 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 David, it's David. okay. I'll object as soon as he says something that proves worthy of my attention. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was a good one, guys. So in this chapter, we also have the sowing of a seed of something that's going to blossom later. And this comes from the visitor who brings the grapes. And Aunt Letty says, oh, I'm sure this will do her good, but I'm afraid they would need fruit from the land of youth to help her now. And that gives mm -hmm. Diggory the hope because he now has a has magic rings that can take him to other worlds maybe this world does exist mm -hmm. it's wonderful because there's hope but there's also the, the 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 pain that comes across with hope the fact that there is now something that he could do if he could only find such a place mm -hmm. but wait does he let him know that there's a, so no no she was just using an expression Okay, so, okay. I wasn't sure if it was as simple as, of course, she doesn't know anything about Narnia, but she's just saying she maybe believed in heaven, and at some point, this person, maybe it's that simple. Or she's probably well-read, you know, she's mm. probably read about mm. the apples from the Garden of Hesperides, which are referred to later on, you know, and she's, you know, it's, it's she probably has a fairly literary education, and she's talking about a dream world, a myth. And, and remember that in some ways, 
Diggory is representative, not in all ways, of Lewis, who at that point is has enough belief that he's praying for his mother to be healed, and then he prays for her to rise from the dead. This seems more like a superstitious prayer than an informed, faithful prayer. And at nine years old, you know, the, the, the dividing line between myth and and truth and and the miraculous is is I think pretty thin. And so I think he's seizing on any opportunity because of how much he loves his mother. So then this chapter comes to a conclusion with the witch has returned. She's destroyed a handsome cab and uh, she's hitting policemen on the head with the uh, the bar from a, from a lamp post. Uh, Matt, did your ears perk up at any point on that bit or did you not see that until a little bit later? Mm-mm, didn't see it, I hate to admit yeah. it. <laughs> but my favorite part of this is the cabbie and he's he's a lovely character that we thankfully get to know better but i love what he says to the witch now missy let me get at his head and just you get off you're a lady and i and don't want all these roughs going for you do you you want to go home and have a nice cup of tea and a lay down quiet like then you'll feel ever so much better <laughs> There's something there I didn't think of because when I came across it, I didn't underline it because I had no idea what the cabbie was going to be later in this book. But obviously, the well, I won't say what the cabbie becomes in case someone listening hasn't read it. You'll hear it next episode. But knowing who he becomes, this was kind of the first sign of there's just a, like an empathy, like a beautiful compassion in there. I mean, she didn't really earn any of that. I mean, by this point, he's already he doesn't know who she is, but she's already come across as like this evil type of person trying to command be arrogant prideful do this do that and he still just like tries to help her out it was kind of just a humility to him and that compassion it's not dissimilar to what happens um there's one of the things that i love about lewis is that there's always a final offer of mercy um and even though it may be refused that offer of mercy is there you see it all over Mm -hmm. the great divorce you Mm -hmm. see it in paralandra where Weston is demon-possessed and about to be dragged down into hell, and Ransom reaches out his hand and says, take my hand, Weston. We, he says, will be okay. Pray a child's prayer if you can't pray a man's, right? He offers him this one more chance in that hideous strength. The wither is offered one last chance. And so he seems to be talking way out of his depth, but in fact, his depth is much deeper than Jadis's is. And she probably, if she followed all his his advice, you know, protect yourself, um, refresh yourself, lie down, give some thoughts, stop doing this crazy stuff that you're doing. I think if she followed him, we'd all be much better off. <laughs> yeah, I, I just noticed that the, this is the first real good, true character that we meet in the book so far. Mm. Everybody mm. else is either nice. uh, wicked or ridiculous, or in the case of, of Diggory and Polly, immature, right? Mm-hmm. But here comes a voice of maturity and a voice of peace and calm and steadiness. And it's very refreshing, isn't it? We're like, oh, there's somebody. <laughs> there's somebody that we can we can um, trust as a character. It just, there's mm-hmm. such a calmness and he knows who he is and he is who he is and he's not putting on airs and he's not manipulating and he's not deceiving and he's not torn and racked with guilt or shame or sin. He's just calmly uh, taking authority in this situation and uh, mm-hmm. good things are to come. 
Mm. We don't know his name yet, do we? No. And good things come because of what happens in Chapter 8, The Fight at the Lamppost. In the confusion, Polly and Diggory manage to return the witch to the wood, but discover they have some unexpected visitors with them. After getting into another pool, they find themselves nowhere. They hear singing, which causes the stars to come out and the dawn to break, and they finally see the source of the song, a great lion. Lazo Major, what are your thoughts on this chapter? <laughs> well, you know, I thought of the scripture in Job where God asks Job, he says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation while the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy? Um, this image of God singing creation into being. I mean, Aslan captures it uh, the way Lewis describes it with Aslan is so beautiful. Um, we don't often think of God singing, and yet the scripture tells us that he does. In Zephaniah 3.17, it says that he sings mm. over us in joy and delight over us, his creation. And so what a beautiful way to picture it. You know, in church a, a few weeks ago in our lectionary, we read through the creation account in Genesis. And depending on how you read it and how often you read it, you know, you can start to lose the sense of wonder. Uh, you can start to kind of hear it just as repetitive or, of course, course. Um, um, but seeing it with fresh eyes, I think that's what I, I got uh, from this chapter, thinking about creation and the beauty and the joy and God singing it into being, as we mm. see with Aslan, singing Narnia into existence and recapturing that sense of wonder and awe. Uh, it's just a, it's a beautiful picture, I think. I think that, um, that Lewis is picking up on those themes. And I think that his friend Tolkien was as well, um, and I think that there's a clear kind of call out to the creation of uh, of Middle Earth, um, and at the in the very first paragraph of the Silmarillion, uh, Tolkien says there was Eru, the one who in Arda is called Iluvatar, and he made the first Ainur, the holy ones that were the offspring of his thought, and they were with him before aught else was made, and he spoke to them, pro propounding to them themes of music. And he sang before him, and they sang before him, and he was glad. Iluvatar, Eru, the god figure in, in Tolkien's world, creates the world by singing. And this mythology is there before Lewis writes um, Magician's Nephew. And so I think that Lewis is swiping from Tolkien. We know that he swipes Numenor from him uh, in, the, in his previous fiction, in the, uh, the Ransom books. And so there's this idea, I think, that he embodies with Aslan that's kind of current amongst the Inklings. And it's nice to see kind of some of their inner workings you know, in, in harmony, pun intended. <laughs> And in the same way that Morgoth reacts badly to the song and wants to do his own thing, you see the witch's reaction to the song. She says, my doom has come upon me. And Andrew, you know, he, he asks the cabbie whether or not he's got a drink. <laughs> what else? Did you guys appreciate the Out of the Silent Planet reference here? Oh, pray tell. Oh, I will pray tell. We were saving the easy stuff for you. <laughs> one. Actually, I totally missed it. Tell us. Tell me what I missed. Actually, okay, that's a good point. Andrew, what 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 am I going to say here? <laughs> What's the Out of the Silent Planet reference? Uh, uh, mm? uh, I, I'm really yeah, going to no. mess up. I better be right by this now. It's going to be really embarrassing if I'm not. <laughs> so the part where the cabbie goes, and if we're dead, which I don't deny it might be, well, you got to remember that worse things happen at sea and a chap got to die sometime. 
Remember mm. at the end, end of Adesanya's plan, the wisdom, it's not just the knowledge of death, but the wisdom of how to die was yes. incredibly important. And the problem with the fallen world yes. was they didn't have the wisdom of how to die. And here he's like, mm -hmm. we're going to die anyways. So, you know, at some time, let's just, there's no better way to pass the time than to sing a hymn. And so I was yes. like, man, this just like screamed at me. This is like, oh, Silent Planet is one of my favorite themes in it. That's like Yoy and his approach to death. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Well, and the thing is, Catholics, um, he approaches it like brother death, right? Mm -hmm. And who called death brother? St. Francis of Assisi. Mm -hmm. St. Francis of Assisi. And what's the cabbie's name? Frank. Frank. Uh. And he's a friend to the animals. I think that Lewis is absolutely shouting out St. Francis. Uh, in this character. And didn't Chesterton write a book on St. Francis of Assisi? Mm -hmm. He did. In he did. You can listen to it on pintswithchesterton.com. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. There you go. Shout out to your better half, the better <laughs> Miss Bates, the better yes. Bates. <laughs> I'll do a half pint with her on it, David. <laughs> well, I think that's a good place to stop. They've seen the lion, which I think, I think we all know who he is. <laughs> And uh, as the witch tries to get hold of the rings, uh, the cabbie tells them that he wants to listen to the music because the song mm. has changed. And we'll find mm -hmm. out what happens with the change of the song in the next episode. And so I just encourage listeners to check out season five, episode 40, The Magician's Twin, my interview with Dr. John G. West, where we point out the links between magic and science. Uh, we don't explicitly say it, but it's there between Uncle Andrew and Weston. But since I hear the call for final drinks, I'd like to thank Taylor Schroll and Sarah Allen, our audio engineers. Thank all of our listeners, Patreon supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Matt1, Matt2, and Matt3, Jake, Erica, Marvin, Joelle, Deborah, Amanda, Emmy, Thomas, Bill, Joanna, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for you all every Tuesday with all the prayer requests in our Slack channel. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media. And before we close, I just want to end with this benediction that we hear from Lewis and from Frank the cabbie. Uh, he's listening to the first voice, the deep one, which had made that made the stars appear and made them sing. Glory be, says he, and say we all. I'd have been a better man all my life if I'd known there were things like this. And we who do know there are, there are things like this, let us strive to be better people as well. Please join us next time when we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. 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 Cheers.